Hello and welcome to the Decoding Sustainable Finance podcast brought to you by Arabesque. My name is Ulrike Hasselgen, I'm a partner and I head up our business in the Nordics. And in case you don't know us, Arabesque is a sustainability fintech company. We're built on the two disruptors of modern finance, ESG and AI, to deliver sustainable intelligence for corporates and capital markets. We believe economic value creation can and should be combined with environmental stewardship, social inclusion and good governance. And uh, through our AI technology, we can assess vast, complex data sets to identify patterns to support better investment decision making. Arabesque is also a house full of brilliant minds. And throughout this podcast series, we will try to decode sustainable finance and explain what it actually means. In our previous episode, we discussed artificial intelligence and how it might be one of the biggest disruptors in the world of finance and investments. Today, we're going to dig into the field of ESG data and research. And uh, as we know, the quantities of ESG data, it's almost like an ocean. And not only do you need to be able to swim in, in some deep waters sometimes, but you also need to be able to navigate, cut through the noise and identify what is useful for investors and what is useful for companies. And uh, looking at the current landscape of reporting on ESG matters, we know that this is a patchy landscape with numerous frameworks and approaches available. And this is challenging for companies preparing reports, but it's also challenging for investors that use them because the reports have not been comparable and therefore often of limited use. So who would be better to help me sort this out than my colleague, Dr. Todd Bridges, who is Global Head of Sustainable Investing in ESG Research. Welcome, Todd. Oh, it's a pleasure to chat. Thank you, Ulrika. Great. So, Todd, we're going to dig into this field of ESG data and research, but let me start, or you start telling us a little bit about you and your academic background and, and your career. Okay, brilliant. Uh, let me take you for a quick uh, history lesson on myself uh, and then how I came into Arabesque. You know, I'll take it from a 20-year perspective. Again, uh, I was always obsessed with financial markets, economics, uh, became very aware of the, we'll call it, problematic assumptions and understanding of how financial markets are designed, built, kind of the irrational behavioral dimensions of markets. And over time, that kind of intellectually set me on a course to challenge both intellectually some assumptions we make, but then also with the ways in which the world around us, the way in which governments, markets interact, the role of technology, the role of entrepreneurs to bring about a, a different future. So again, it's a, a long story um, and it began kind of in intellectual areas. And then over the last 20 years, uh, there has been a, a number of steps into traditional academia, then a series of think tanks, a couple of financial investment banking firms, uh, recent last seven plus years moved into fintechs uh, out in Silicon Valley, and then uh, moved into kind of core traditional asset management at State Street Global Advisors, and then my move over to Arabesque, which as you know, it's a hybrid, multi kind of uh, objectives, businesses, and so you know, I, I look forward to sharing with you more and more about the ESG data analytics and technology business called SRA. Great. I think, I mean, 
Could you elaborate a little bit, uh, Todd, because you've been working with research both in the academic world and in the business world and, and with investment. What are some of the differences that you observed between these two fields? Yeah, perfect. Well, again, I, I think uh, anyone who's in a high growth venture kind of startup who is really focused on moving the ball fast. So that is probably the most striking difference between a traditional think tanks or academic research career versus going into industry and moving really fast to design, build, R&D, get a minimally viable product or an MVP product up off the ground uh, in model form and then move that into production, right? So that you can start to help clients around the world and try to find product market fit. So, you know, the, the speed at which research is done is fundamentally different. Um, I remember back in the days of academia and think tanks, we would take years uh, before we had a very full-blown research design thesis and then materialize into, in that, in that setting, it was in a chapter or a book or a course, uh, versus now, you know, within three months, we have to have full R&D in product form and being able to have an MVP stand up. Sometimes you have the luxury in industry of of having longer runways, six months, for example. But that's one of the key distinctions. Um, I think the other aspect is just the sheer amount of collaboration within uh, at least Arabes S-Ray, as we operate a global research team across multiple time zones, six different offices around the world. the research kind of collaboration is is quite amazing uh, in at least this industry in, in this practice in this firm, um, and so I, you know thinking the back of your mind with we're really trying to coordinate and collaborate a research team of about eighty plus individuals around the world. If you include the engineers, you know we're looking at well over a hundred and hundred and ten to one hundred and twenty builders, designers and builders that have to collaborate in moving that research from ideation to model form to validation to product form and pushing that out. So trying to coordinate, you know, 100 plus people, you know, in a particular research design, it's noticeably different. I remember back in the academy, of course, you have two, three people and you you have six months to a year. So those are kind of just a few observations about key differences and distinctions between these last 20 years uh, of building research. Right. I want, I want to hear a little bit more about your role, Todd, as, as Head of Sustainable Investing in East. You research at Arabesque, sort of what you do and what's, what's your main focus. However, just what you mentioned there, the colleagues in your team and the collaboration, you mentioned researchers, but you also mentioned the engineers. Right. What, what do the engineers do in your research team? Yeah, wonderful. So again, I think uh, the nature of, well, Arabesque's research and development process is it's mission critical. It, you know, it sits on the kind of the nexus of multiple expertise. As you, I think you started the conversation here, it's, you know, we have brilliant minds across data, climate science, sophisticated machine learning, natural language processing, everything from the product market fit design and build of how to build products. And then ultimately engineers who are thinking always about kind of systemic solutions 
efficiency, the architecture of the databases, and also in a late stage, of course, focusing on productionalization. This is where when we design and build a product, we lock it into a particular form, code it up, and then work with the engineers to distribute that around the world, all right? either in a data form at a regular specified frequency, you know, daily or weekly or monthly. Uh, but then we also need to get that data into a number of platforms. We have one platform within Arabes S-Ray, a technology platform for distribution of that data and insights. We have, as you probably shared with the AI auto CIO platform, that's the investment platform. And then we partner with a series of technology and data information companies around the world, such as FactSet, AWS, Snowflake, to get our data and scoring systems into those platforms. So that kind of takes all of those individuals and expertise to be able to, to move the ball and get the data and product to the client. Mm, great. It's a bit of a personal question now, Todd, but in your role as Head of Sustainable Investing and ESG Research, with the researchers, uh, with the tech team and all, do you come across sort of a challenge between those two competence areas sometimes? I mean, the researchers uh, having a particular view, whereas the tech team and the engineers saying, uh, well, we can do this, but we cannot do that. And does that does that create some kind of... I, what does that create? Exactly. No, it, it definitely creates a challenging environment, but only those who can, those teams or organizations who can navigate, communicate, break down the barriers and silos between all of these levels of expertise, right? Each one of the teammates is brilliant in their own area, in their own subject, in their own technical skills. But it's the bringing together of multiple people across those expertise that you create something, you innovate, you create something that has never been designed and built before, right? Mm. So yes, uh, every day we struggle with that across the, all the members. Um, you know, I, we have conversations with uh, the CTO and I, you know, most of the time we're perfectly aligned, but certain times he's, you know, got a full engineering mind versus a, I'm come at it from a researcher's mind or a sustainability dimension. And so we don't quite see how to get to the finish line, if you will, metaphorically. Mm. Um, and so there's a number of ways in which you have, you know, similarly, I have a climate scientist who are brilliant in their area, but then they're very needing to be understanding of the product and what a product form is, and ultimately what a client would want in a product. So there's a difference and a gap there. So you ha you'll have to have daily interactions between in that example, the climate scientists, the product office, and the client. Um, and so, yeah, th these are uh, challenges that we deal with on a daily basis. Maybe if I just yeah connect the dots back to your original question, uh, you know, again, the title is Global Head of Sustainable Investing and Issue Research. What does that mean? Um, it really boils down to helping facilitate <laughs> that team around the world. And the ability to move an idea from either a demand function, like clients around the world want to have this, can you, can you create something? So then we formally move into research and development. Uh, that research and development, again, it can take multiple forms. We have 
a core data and data production business, as, as I think you're probably wanting to dive into the details a little later, but we have a, a massive data operation. Uh, this is where data experts across ESG, climate data, and ultimately uh, that has to materialize in a product or service on raw data. Mm. Then uh, we do have a, a massive scoring and analytics team around the world. Uh, this is where, you know, in the back of your mind, think we've got 25 leading machine learning experts, climate science, um, sustainability, statisticians, econometricians, to be able to make sense of massive amounts of data into unique algorithms, kind of rules-based scoring algorithms. And then the other aspect is really thinking about what we call advisory and bespoke uh, solutions. This is where we have to design and build for corporate entities or for those clients who do not have data and product uh, researchers on staff that we would design and build solutions for them. And that's unique IP for them. So those are a little bit about more about what we do, these sub teams that we, that we manage and then uh, how, we, how we try to create products and services across that space. I want to pick up on what you mentioned earlier about what clients want. And I mean, our clients are both investors, asset owners and asset managers, but also the corporates. So how is it in our way of conducting and providing research and data that we can actually work with both investors and the corporates without, is, isn't there a conflict? Multiple ways to answer that question. So yes, you know we do design and build solutions for investors and corporates. Um, when you're designing any particular solution, whether that's a data solution, a scoring and analytics solution, or a form of advisory consulting, um, you do need to be crystal clear and well understand kind of the objectives and use cases of those users. And you're right, there, there are differences there. So again, from the research to the model, to the product, to the service that we're designing and building, you need to know what those two unique clients have as their objectives and what is their use case, right? I can give, for example, uh, if you're designing and building a, a, an ESG score for a investor, they are primarily focused on the financially material drivers uh, that are relevant to ESG. And they also are looking at risk return, right? Risk return, what information set within an ESG score would potentially or high probability of transmitting to a risk return profile. The corporations, on the other hand, you know, it's not necessarily focused on a risk return characteristics. They want an ESG that is transparent, that they can explain, and that has some sense of materiality, but it perhaps could deviate from traditional risk return characteristics that are central to the investors. So yeah, we're, we're very cognizant of understanding the different types of users or clients of our products and services. And then when we design a particular product or service, we need to keep in mind those differences and they manifest themselves in and how we deliver that product as well through different delivery mechanisms or through different technology applications. Mm. Yeah, great. I, I want to touch a little bit upon the volumes of data the, and the growing quantities of ESG data. I mean, how do you how do you go about to ensure 
quality of research with this huge amount of data that you have access to? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very good question. It's a complicated answer. I'll try to keep it tight because um, we could probably spend 45 minutes just on that one. Um, again, I, I think it's important, from, at least from my research mind uh, and processing, it is really about different levels of the inputs necessary. All right. So, of course, you, well, we'll call it the different processing that is needed throughout that sustainable value creation, right, across research. So back to quality for data, uh, you need to be painfully aware of the intricacies of ESG data or climate data. Um, and you need to induce a lot of structure on capturing that information. Uh, as you know better than anyone, you've been in the field for a while and you know the, the complexities of that data disclosed. When you're looking at all publicly available information on ESG and climate, the data is still voluntary uh, most of the time. We, we have very few mandatory requirements. The digital structure of that data is lacking. Point being that it's oftentimes it's just sitting in textual form in a PDF documentation. So you don't have highly digitized structured data. And you know there's the, the need to, to understand that also the disclosures of that ESG and climate data often has biases, right? Uh, in all honesty, large market cap companies put out that information at higher frequency, at higher quality. And so when you induce a primary data acquisition strategy on primary inputs, it's important to take into account all of these intricacies. And in doing so, don't turn a blind eye to this, but actually understand the intricacies and then induce a lot of data quality, right? So we have, for example, in our data, primary data acquisition business and strategy, we've got eight stages of data quality, right? So that you have to understand different levels of data granularity, what you're feeding into your model, right? So then back to your question again, when you're processing that information kind of at the research model design, you also have to do a series of validations and a series of uh, ways in which you process that data, account for outliers, outlier detection, a lot of standard statistics, econometrics kind of work. Um, and so that would allow you to ensure also a lot of low information so that, you know, again, you wouldn't want to create an ESG score, even if you had the inputs and maybe there's just too little information being fed into your scoring system and you couldn't create a score. So there's a number of techniques there on the quality and the types of information that you're allowing to process in. Um, and then ultimately when you're, creating a product and servicing clients around the world, you also have to induce a series of quality steps. So this is, you know, we induce this through our data delivery systems around the world so that when we deliver that data to clients, then we also have a series of data quality checks at that level. So again, long-winded answer, but there are systematic ways that the data quality uh, needs to be assessed, processed at different levels of granularity. Mm. So I want to continue actually on on the on the topic of data quality, but I want to add, uh, you know, the the concept of financial materiality. So if I'm if I'm an investor, and I want to integrate ESG as a factor along 
financial factors in my investment process and, and decision making. I I would say that I need quality data about matters that that can affect uh, company performance. And this, of course, is the concept we know as financial materiality. But how do you treat financial materiality in your research to sort of bridge business and environmental and social impacts and turn the sometimes noisy data into actionable insights for me as an investor? Well, that is the crux of the problem. Uh, And again, that's the billion dollar question if you can solve and and design solutions in that space. Um, For me, you know, the notion of materiality, uh, again, it's one could uh, assess it from a legal perspective, what is material, uh, and that's oftentimes financial materiality is defined by regions or regulators or security exchanges, for example. Um, But in the case of our area, of course, sustainability ESG research uh, and investor-focused, there's a couple of guiding posts that you can follow. Um, We know, for example, the SASB, or Sustainability Accounting Standards, has been for many years now, almost a little over 10 years, has been designing and building a, a set of standards for ESG, or sustainability data standards at the accounting level metrics uh, that are always focused on financially material information, highly quantifiable information that that could be uh, directly linked to financial performance, right? The enterprise value creation of a firm. So, you know, there are some guideposts out there with respect to industry standards, such as SASB. The problem with that is that most companies around the world still don't put out high quality, standardized ESG material information into public markets. So there's a bit of a gap there. And that's what we're kind of feeling around the world. Many regulators are trying to take a stance. The potential SEC might come in. Uh, I think there's general consensus now that climate information and the climate risks that you have in your portfolio are universally accepted as financially material and now from the top down there's there's general consensus and across investors that we should have high quality climate data it is financially material and you should put it out and so there are progress at SASB standard level there's uh, internationals the IFRS for example just made a massive announcement with respect to this exact matter, whereby they, from the IFRS Foundation, uh, will create an international standards board embracing SASB at the global level, along with the CDSB. And those will, for once, globally, try to answer your question, uh, that we can get to a generally agreed upon consensus for material information that is required by companies around the world. So, Todd, do you believe that the uh, uh, ISSB, the International Sustainability Standards Board, will it become the global baseline for corporate sustainability reporting? I, I think yes. If it will, yes, I do believe it might take us three, four, five, ten years to get there. Um, again, it's important that you know this, mm. and it's also important for all of our listeners to understand that the IFRS and the IFRS uh, Foundation 
you know, that does not have full global uh, acceptance, right? Yeah. So we know that IFRS and and then there's the gap. So, you know, there are some differences uh, across the globe and the U.S. markets, for example, even on the traditional definitions of financially material information and financially material requirements for companies around the world. Mm. So even in finance world, uh, the two dominant bodies who set the accounting standards in the world, there's not full agreement. But that being said, back to your question, the with the IFRS and this new initiative that they've designed, that should move us much closer to having most of the world have uh, financially material minimum information being asked of by the by corporations around the world. Yeah. I want to get in, I want to focus a little bit on, on the corporates, but, uh, you know, fr- from, from the investor perspective again, just mm-hmm. um, in addition to financial materiality, uh, as an investor, I want the data to be, you know, I need the comparability, I need to be able to access it. And as you mentioned, you know, sometimes this data and this reporting is in a PDF document, whereas I want it, you know, in, in, in tables and I want yeah. to upload it in my own systems. And I also want that data to be reliable. So these are areas of, of priorities to to promote and also support companies in their efforts to provide what we can say standardized uh, disclosures um, that can be used for investment research and decision making. But what about the companies? What is needed from the companies? Because there is, as you mentioned, there is some kind of gap here uh, between what companies report and disclose on and what investors are asking for or needing. But then we Absolutely. have other stakeholders. Absolutely. I mean, again, this gap, as you've just described it, it is, I always call it a collective action problem, right? So we have a market mechanism. Uh, it's, it functions, it's assumed to function in a particular way, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> By finding information on securities, assets, uh, assessing them and yep. their economic viability, and then investing in those assets. Uh, and now, uh, you know, there is this question that arises, you know, what is material with respect to ESG and climate? Um, and investors, as as, you, as we just chatted about, they're getting more clarity as to what they think is material. But the corporations still struggle tremendously with understanding exactly what investors want. Uh, and then even if they knew, you know, even if there were exact standards, either SASB or IFRS, for example, and a minimum information set, how do the corporates manage that information? How do they capture that data within the organization? How do they potentially validate or audit that information? And then when they're ready, how do they put that information into public markets? Where do they submit it? Do they submit it to the financial regulator, either in the European markets or the SEC, for example? Or is there a global solution to be able to have them put that data into public markets and allow that highly digitized structured data to be put into global public markets. Mm. And so this is an area of, of active debate uh, and design and build. And in all honesty, you know, we, we have been working in this space of to the ways in which technology and technology can be applied or designed and built to facilitate this conversation, this direct engagement between investors and corporates 
through a technology platform and communication that allows for this gap, as you refer to it, to be broken down mm. systemically. Right? Yeah. yeah, because I'm curious to hear within this space, I mean, some of the developments that you are excited about. And given the, given the challenge for companies, for investors, for society, for policymakers, don't we need some kind of new form of collaboration between companies and their investors and maybe also bring in the academia, subject matter experts, the policymakers? Yeah, true. Um, what's your thought on on that. Um, yeah, let me just give you a, a little bit of thought, but also give you some examples of actual technical solutions that are being designed around the world. Um, so yes, we know that of this gap, and we've know that because of the gap, there has been a, a difficulty to get high quality, transparent, highly replicable, and structured ESG and climate data. Uh, what there are is a number of new initiatives around the world, uh, one being the European Single Access Platform by mm. the European Commission and the European Union. Uh, they, as part of their larger capital market unions, uh, are trying to facilitate the development of European capital markets with the understanding that financial and non-financial or sustainability data is integral to being able to build capital markets. And so what the European Single Access Platform does is between now and 2028, through three different stages of builds, that would allow for every investor across every region of the European Union to be able to have a central repository for all financial and sustainability data. Now, this kind of gets directly to your point, it's there's corporations sitting in Italy or in Germany or in uh, you know the Nordics, and they're putting out information. They're putting out information in different locations, CSR reports, company websites, potentially even a national regulatory agency. But there is no unified source for that information. And so, you know, I, I think that is one key initiative, the European Single Access Platform, that's trying to break down these, this direct barrier to have a, a single repository whereby every company within that union has to put their data there. And you can go there as an investor or whomever and be able to pull it. Right? So th that partly gets to, to a, a systemic problem, a solution to solve a problem. Another example is the OSC. This is the Operating System for Climate. This is a, a brilliant initiative that has developed over the last few years with the founders of Linux and Red Hat kind of and some technology firms and a lot of new finance uh, firms where they're trying to build a, a single open access platform for all climate data and be able to have an open architecture to allow for climate and climate specialists, maybe this is your point, uh, you know, it's also going to be bringing in the leading academics and academic institutes and climate scientists, for example, to be able to engage on a technology platform and that processes climate data from the origin all the way up to being able to have a, a climate risk systems, for example. Uh, again, that's one example uh, that's a single kind of we'll call it a, a network platform 
that is trying to be designed and built to solve climate material information. Now, again, that, that initiative might take years to build. We don't know. Uh, you know, we're hopeful and we're collaborative and we, we hope that that can be built and get off the ground. The third solution that we've been working on is, is one that we uh, have been designing and building. And this we will be coming to market later this year. Uh, it's built on the same kind of premise that there is a gap. We need to have technology build a transmission and direct communication between corporates and investors on all things ESG and climate. You need to bring together the stakeholder community, as, as you, you know, rightfully point out. You need to bring in the framework owners, the standards, the regulators. You need to potentially bring in leading academic research institutes in the climate space, for example, to all come into a central platform to have direct communication and data exchange and data analytics on. These solutions are being designed and built. It might take us a while, but we're, we're definitely thinking about ways in which technology can start to disrupt this space mm. and create uh, creative, what I call creative destruction, right? So that you're creating a, a new forms of value creation. What would you say about the need for creating uh, uh, these types of platforms or uh, sort of tools that enables investors and companies and other stakeholders uh, regardless of geographical location because the EU of course in the single access platform it's sort of within the EU border and of course uh, the EU may have a, a, a vision and an ambition to reach the world but as we know there are many regions and, and countries outside of the EU so from your perspective uh, and also from the research and, and accessing data on companies that may be located in, within the EU or elsewhere, but has a supply chain that is very far away from, from headquarters, yes, what is no. the tool needed for, for that sort of type of holistic research? Exactly. Yeah. So I think um, built into the research design and technology builds of those platforms, it, is the acknowledgement that we have biases around the world, right? As you said, there are regional biases. We know that Europe, for example, um, puts out more information, more ESG, and a little bit of higher quality, quote unquote. Um, and so we know there's regional differences in the amount of information disclosed. We know that there are market cap biases in the amount of and quality of information being disclosed. And the only way uh, to solve that uh, that's kind of a systemic solution is, is through something like these platforms. Um, and you're, you're spot on. The European single access platform is a European solution. It has and will have impacts within the next, you know, from now until 2028. Uh, and then beyond, it, it probably should have significant impacts. Um, but where's the rest of the world? The rest of the world needs a, you know, research data and technology solutions that make sense of it all. Uh, and so, you know, it's important uh, that you allow for framework and standard owners that are in different regions, right? So if and when there is a sustainability standards regulation or, or standards frameworks that's set in the ASEAN region or in uh, Japan if for corporate governance, for example, you need to allow for flexibility 
uh, in loading those different regional frameworks or standard bodies, right? So, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a little far out. I, I don't get me wrong, I know, <laughs> but um, at least the technology's in place to allow for this. We understand uh, that we have systemic problems uh, and the only way to come about these solutions is, is to be bringing the experts around the world together on around uh, this type of platform ecosystem. And that could allow for you know companies, regardless of location, regardless of market cap, regardless of public or private, mm. to be able to take advantage of and disclose at the same rate or quality of information and investors to be able to pull in a lot of new information that was, at least in the ESG and climate space, that was just never possible mm. because you're always reliant on a data analytics company, some of the ones that we all know and, and ourselves historically that are limited with how many companies you can go and capture their data on, right? Or the companies just don't put out that data. That, that's, a, that's a systemic problem. So the, uh, the investors don't have enough information. The corporates would like to put out more and more information, but don't know how or when and in what digital format. Right. Yeah. I, I actually, I want to conclude with a final, final thought from you, Todd, or, or maybe it's a question. If, I mean, you have been in this feel for for a number of years and and as we know sustainability is high on the agenda everywhere but if there's one topic or one problem or one opportunity that you could prioritize to to manage what would that be just one (laughs) yeah just one you can pick one (laughs) you know again we need to be able to connect the puzzle pieces, right? We need to be able to connect the formal data disclosure of corporates to those who are wanting to use the data for supply chain, for risk return characteristics, alpha, beta, you know, any form of, of investment objectives. Uh, the, the faster we can connect that all, uh, and, uh, you know, that would be kind of my one fix. Uh, and you know, again, as I've been discussing, the ability for technology to bring together the ecosystem and connect the dots. It's from the producers of the information, essentially companies, to the consumers. Uh, and being able to have the producer and consumer of information, sustainability information connected, have direct interactions, and to allow for that sustainability value creation right in the form of data ip scoring systems or in the ability to finally connect raw data submitted high quality transfer kind of structured data into the performance questions you know under what conditions does the esg affect the performance for this region for this asset class and how Uh, you know so that would be my one fix is to induce uh, clarity and transmission kind of through the, through that ecosystem as you refer that, that that systemic gap. Excellent. This is a great uh, priority and and thank you for sharing and and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it was my pleasure.
anytime you want to have a future chat, you just let me know. Great. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And, and I also want to thank everyone who has listened uh, to this episode of the Decoding Sustainable Finance podcast. You're always welcome to get in touch with us. And of course, always visit our website, arabesque.com, for more information. And uh, please stay tuned for the next episode where I'll be joined uh, by, by a new colleague to further decode sustainable finance. <laughs>